0: I'm Joel Chasnoff, and this is Inside Israel. Well, welcome, everyone, to Inside Israel. It's November 6, 2023. Helping me out today will be my friend Rabbi Neil Katz in the humongous Jewish town of Tyler, Texas. Neil's is a longtime friend. and He's going to help me moderate with the questions. Uh, I'd love you to go ahead and put your questions in the chat as soon as you think of them. And then because I have Neil helping me, he can sort of organize them and i'll pause every so often we can probably join a few questions together because a lot of them will be similar i want to give you a little bit of uh background on where i am right now and what i've been learning the past week i'm actually in the united states myself uh in texas about an hour outside of austin as it turns out i have a couple days off from the tour i've been touring pretty much nonstop since the tragedy of october 7th began and I think the name of this tour is the Thread the Needle comedy tour. It's very much a pivot from my normal act. I'm sharing stories that are a lot more meaningful and a lot more heartwarming and sort of sneaking the humor in. So audiences are still laughing, but it's much more toned down and respectful. And I must say the feedback is great. People, I think they really enjoy the inside look at Israel because there's a lot of Q&A that I offer after the shows, but also... They're enjoying laughing. Uh, People have said that it's cathartic that, you know, whether no matter where they are um, in North America, and I'm talking about not even people who are Israeli, but just American Jews, Canadian Jews, this is really weighing on them. Many people have told me they're not sleeping at night the way they normally do. Uh, they are thinking about this, if not constantly, then a lot. And it's influencing their lives. It's impacting their diet. It's really changing uh, how they go about the world. And so if I can bring a little bit of laughter and catharsis, uh, you know, I'm happy to do that. I've been to a, there are two events that really stand out. Uh, one of them was at Brown University last week. I performed for Hill, uh spoke to the Hillel at Brown University. And it was a conversation. And we really talked about the state of, What it's like to be a Jew on campus right now. Uh, One of the big events that's happened since you and I last spoke was a student at Cornell University was actually arrested and could go to jail for five years for threatening Jewish students online. In the year 2023, unbelievable, but students at Cornell were warned, Jewish students were warned not to eat in the kosher dining hall because of threats to their safety. Uh, The Israeli government issued a warning few days ago telling Jews around the world to hide signs of Judaism, tuck in those Magen David necklaces, maybe wear a hat over your kippah. And to so many of us, it's simply unbelievable that in the 21st century we are having to be careful about how we express our Judaism. I must say at all the shows I'm doing lately, there is a lot of security. Um, more than the normal token police car parked outside. Um, The other event I wanted to speak about was an event, a fundraiser for the Shayetet 13, the Navy SEALs of the IDF. There's an organization called AFINS, American Friends of Israel Navy SEALs, and they were raising money to help all of the reservists who've been called up, um, buying stuff for the base, some supplies that we can't really talk about, but uh, the goal of that night was to raise between $350,000 $400,000, and we raised between seven hundred fifty dollars and $800,000, and I think it just shows you how much the American Jewish community uh, wants to help. One donor put in a match of $250,000 while we were going around taking, uh, you know, sort of doing the how much would you like to do pledge. One man stood up and gave $100,000 on the spot. People really want to get behind Israel and do what they can. Uh, And that was was very heartening for uh, me to see. What I am seeing is I meet a lot of Israelis also as I travel around, and they're having a very hard time. Uh, The Israelis I meet, uh, they feel very torn, I think. As hard as this time is in Israel, it's also a very special time to be in Israel. The country comes together in the hardest of times. The volunteering, the volunteerism is still going strong. And more than one Israeli has mentioned to me that they feel a part of their heart um, is there right now. And they kind of long to go back because if you've never been in Israel during a time of conflict, Uh, there is something very different about the country and a sense of unity that sweeps over it. So that's where I am right now. And I do hope you, uh, at the end, I'm going to put the web link to my tour schedule. I'll be all around the U.S. uh, over the coming months, California, the East Coast, Florida, Northwest, and I'd love to see you while I'm going around. So what is happening right now in Israel? What are the big stories? What are people talking about? Well, for one thing, the big news story that Israelis are talking about is that Gaza has been split into two. The same way there is North Korea and South Korea, there is now North Gaza and South Gaza. It this I can't emphasize how incredible this is that the Gaza Strip has now been cut into two pieces the israeli military came in from the north and from the east and cut through all the way to the coast using uh, one of the most elite units in the army to go west uh, sorry east to west through gaza this is Sayeret golani this is one of the uh, one of the toughest units to get into and one of the most highly trained and they were they were able to penetrate all the way from eastern gaza to the mediterranean sea And this has essentially split Gaza into two, and we're already seeing the results. Why is this important? As I mentioned last time, 80% of Hamas's rockets have a range of about 12 miles, about 18 kilometers. And by pushing them to the south, it's much more difficult for them to bomb Israel, to fire missiles at Israel that actually strike. They have attempted but they've fallen in the sea. We are actually seeing that it is working. Now, we have had a few more missile attacks from Hezbollah in the north to compensate, but it is effective to have pushed Hamas, for the most part, out of the north. Uh And there from what I've heard, there's only about 100,000 Gazans still in northern Gaza, which sounds like a lot, but when you consider that the population of Gaza is 2 million, uh that's... You know, that's and maybe if there were one million there, that's probably less than 10% of the population that remains. So Gaza, northern Gaza has essentially been taken over by the IDF. What does this mean for what's ahead? The next step would be to try to take over Gaza City. Right now the IDF is surrounding Gaza City. Hamas's main base is in Gaza City, under the Shifra Hospital. This has now been well known and proven that their main base of operations is under the hospital. I would not be surprised that by the time you and I speak next week, uh, if the IDF has made some serious progress toward that hospital, I do not think they will get there by then. Gaza City taking it over is going to be an an incredibly difficult operation. We are talking about going alley by alley, building by building, looking for weapons, looking for tunnels, um, looking for Hamas members who are who might be hiding out, although most are suspected to now be underground. But the Minister of Defense, Yoav Gallant, has said that this operation will take months, and we should take him at his word. We are not looking at an operation that's going to finish up by December or by two thousand twenty-four. This, I'd say, a minimum of six months is what we're looking at because we need to go very, very slowly. In two thousand fourteen, we went way too quickly into Gaza during Tsuketan, lost many soldiers, and I think we are—we've learned our lesson. We are going very, very slowly. Uh, but the goal ultimately is to close in and sort of choke off Gaza City and work the way uh, toward the center of operations, toward that hospital. Um, Hamas is in tunnels underneath that hospital. And so I don't know exactly how they're going to do it. They have said that they have technologies and ways of Destroying these tunnels that we haven't heard of yet that are yet will be a surprise to the enemy and i'm I'm certainly curious myself, but engineering brigades have been working hard to blow up every tunnel they have come across, but that would be the ultimate goal is to take over that military base under Gaza Hospital. So what does that mean in terms of casualties? Well, in two in, until now and someone just commented the moving slowly also is a a result of all the mines and booby traps. Yes, this is true. Uh, Every rock that you see in Gaza, and I say this as a tank soldier who was serving in Lebanon, we were warned when going to Lebanon that every rock you see, assume it is not a rock. Assume it is a piece of plastic that looks exactly like a rock, but it's been shaped to look like a rock, but it's hollow. And inside are explosives. There can be tripwire, other booby traps, so this is another reason exactly, Debbie, thank you for pointing it out, that they're going so slowly, is because of all the, uh, the obstacles that Hamas has set up that we need to be very careful about. Uh, but that does segue very, you know, very well into the next topic, which is the number of casualties. So far, there have been 30 deaths of IDF soldiers since the operation began, and that includes uh, soldiers in the north. And that includes a lone soldier, a policeman, a policewoman, who who died of her injuries today, actually in the West Bank. So that 30 is not even all of Gaza. How do Israelis feel about this number 30? Well, on the one hand, every Israeli soldier is is mourned in Israel. Uh, This is not you know, a small, tiny paragraph on page 16 of the newspaper of when a soldier dies—it's front-page news. On the news, they run biographies of the soldier. If and when a soldier should be killed, uh, the entire country mourns for every soldier who is lost. They literally are our sons, our brothers, our neighbors, and so the the country is sad anytime a soldier is any time a soldier dies. That's- that said. We have to look at it from a military perspective as well. And I must say that to be this deep into Gaza, to cut off the north of Gaza and be surrounding Gaza City, and I put only in quotes, but with only 30 deaths, some of them are not even from operations in Gaza, it is an incredibly low number. And while we would never just dismiss that number as irrelevant or meaningless, in the context of what the IDF has accomplished and this relatively no, low number of, of casualties, um, this, I think Israelis realize that this war is going as well as it can. I think no one would expect that we would have an operation like this with no casualties. At the same time, there is also a feeling that there could be a lot more ahead Going into Gaza City will be extremely dangerous. There are a lot of these booby traps, the mines, to worry about. At every opportunity, Hamas will pop out of the tunnels and fire RPGs. These are rocket-propelled grenades and other weaponry at IDF soldiers. So there is a possibility, and I think a strong possibility, that there could be more casualties ahead. And the government is trying to prepare the country psychologically for this possibility. How are they doing this? Well, if you watch the speeches that uh, Israeli officials give, Yoav Galant, who's the defense minister, the chief of staff, and also uh, Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister, they use certain words when describing the war. And these words to someone who... Might know casual Hebrew, they might not notice the meaning behind these words. But to Israelis, these words are code words. Some of these words are kaved, which means heavy, aruch, which means long, kashe, which is difficult or hard, and mechir, which means price. So when these government officials are describing the operation in Gaza, they'll say the milchama. This is a heavy war. Uh, This is a difficult war. And when they use words like kaved, kashe, in aroch, what they're really saying, if you read between the lines, is public realize that there could be casualties ahead. Heavy and price, that means body counts. That means casualties. And I think they're trying to warn the Israeli public, us, that this could be uh that this could be ahead and try to brace us for the reality one of the deaths that happened this past week is i want to point out for a, a few reasons uh it's a it's very significant on a few fronts um i was in the 188th armored brigade which is a tank brigade uh called barak based in the golan heights and every tank brigade is divided into 3 battalions there's the 53rd battalion the 71st battalion that's the one i was in and the 74th battalion and this past week the commander of the 53rd battalion was killed in in combat and it's significant for a few reasons first of all this is very unique to the IDF that the commander of an entire battalion would be killed in combat. In many militaries, the commanders of battalions stay back. They're in a control room, maybe with a com- bunch of computer screens, or they're on the radio in headquarters. But in the, Ar- in the Israeli army, there's very much this idea of acharai, which means after me. And the officers lead the soldiers into the battle. And one consequence is that we sometimes lose the commanders of entire battalions. And this week, um, we lost the battalion commander of the 53rd um, Battalion of the 188th now what else is significant about this and this is huge he was druze this commander of the 53rd battalion was an arab druze israeli not jewish and i think this is such a beautiful signal to israelis and to the rest of the world that this idea of coexistence not being possible, not only is it wrong, but this proves that it's wrong, that we had an Arab Jew's a Druze battalion commander. First of all, it says a lot, simply that he was able to advance up the army ranks to attain uh, that role. Um, and also the amount of trust that we have in him and he has in Israel as a, a majority Jewish state, I think it speaks volumes to what Israel is all about. And his death has actually led a number of politicians to call for the repeal or at least the re-examination of what's called the nation-state law. The nation-state law uh, was passed um, you know, a few years ago. I would have to look it up. Perhaps Neil Katz can look it up when it was actually passed. Uh, but the whole idea of the nation-state law was that it was made Hebrew the official language, not Arabic, uh, that it's an, a Jewish state and really favors... I mean, look, Israel is a Jewish state, but it really laid down certain principles to guarantee that this was... Prioritizing uh, Jewish um, Jewish citizens. Thank you, July 2018, Neil. And the fact that we had a Druze battalion commander killed has made a, has made some calling for reexamination of the nation state law that maybe we need to soften it a bit. When I wrote my last book, Israel 201, I spent a day at the number one high school in Israel, and the number one high school in Israel is actually the Darka Druze High School in a town called Yarka in the Galilee. This was an underperforming school, but then they got an amazing principal named Kamil Shela, and he's Druze, and he used Druze uh, principles and Druze ideology to help inspire his students, and it turned it into the number one high school in Israel. Over 90% of the Druze students at this high school pass the Bagrut matriculation exams and qualify for college. This compared to only about 60% uh, in Jewish high schools in Israel. Uh, So part of that interview that I spent at the Yarka Druze High School is I interviewed Druze High School students about what's it like to be Druze in a country of Jews. And they said, we feel caught in the middle. They say they feel personally bothered by the nation state law. And they said, we feel caught in the middle. Anachnu be'emtsa, they said. They said that Jewish people look at us as terrorists because we're Arabs. And Muslim Arabs and Palestinians look at us as traitors because we serve in the Israeli army. As it turns out, by percentage, the Druze have the highest percentage of enlistment in the IDF because Haredi Jews don't serve for the most part in the Israeli army, but Druze, they do. The principle of the Druze religion is that you are loyal to whatever government is in power. So when the Druze in the Golan Heights were under Syrian rule, they were loyal to Syria. But once Israel took over the Golan Heights, they were loyal to Israel and they serve in the army at a very high rate. And so I I think this is a chance to re-examine Israel's policy on the nation state law. Uh, and how these students that I talk to, so they no longer feel caught in the middle, but really feel like they have a full voice and a full role in Israeli society. Um, the other thing I want to mention about that death of that armored battalion commander is if you look at the thirty deaths of soldiers so far, it seems like a disproportionate number are from armored brigades. These are tank units. Um, a lot of them, are from infantry units, the very elite forces like Sayeret-Givati. Givati Givati is another infantry unit like Golani. And a number of the soldiers killed have been from Givati and Sayeret-Givati and Maglan and Shaldag and these other very elite units. But a, a number of them are from the armored corps, from tanks. And a lot of people might wonder, how are tank soldiers dying? Because you would think that if you were in a tank, that would actually be the best place to be because you're protected in the Merkava tank, which is world known for being probably the safest armored vehicle in the world. There's a very, very special plated armor on the Merkava that was uh, developed by Yisrael Tal, an Israeli engineer. Um, So how is it that tank soldiers are dying? Uh, Well, this is what I call, and I wrote about this in one of my other books, The 188th Baby Brigade. Uh, as a tank soldier, we learned that one of the myths of the Armored Corps is that the tank is a very safe place to be uh, if there are bullets being fired, but it's much less safe if there's RPGs, rocket propelled grenades, uh, or other heaven weaponry fired. And uh, unfortunately, Hamas and Hezbollah have discovered that to destroy a tank, you don't necessarily need to fire at the tank. One option that they do is they fire at the treads, the wheels. And if they can disable the tank, then the soldiers need to get out, repair the tank. And then in a way, they're sitting ducks. They're no longer protected. Also, tanks sometimes tip over. The center of gravity is very high. And one of the tank soldiers killed this week actually was killed in the north because his, I believe it was the north, uh, because his tank tipped over. So tank accidents happen as well. But it is sort of a phenomenon that Tanks aren't nearly, um, nearly as safe as you would think. Uh, on the one hand, they can be extremely safe in battle, certainly more than infantry, but you are vulnerable. Uh, just because you're in the tank does not mean you're not vulnerable, and we learned that ourselves before going into Lebanon. And this happened in Lebanon in 2006 as well. A number of tank soldiers were killed, and this surprised Israelis, but it has to do with some of the vulnerabilities involved in being in a tank. Uh, I want to pause real quick. Does anyone have questions? So, oh, well, there's one question and it actually has to do exactly with the next topic uh, that I want to talk about, which are the hostages. What is going on with the hostages? Uh, To date, there are now estimated to be 241 hostages. If you remember, just two weeks ago, we were saying the number was 130 and then 150 and slowly it was climbing to 200. It's all already at 241. Why is this number changing all the time? Well, there's a few reasons. First of all, not every body that has been killed in Israel on October 7th has been identified. Uh, I'm sorry to get gruesome, but the truth is that some of the bodies were so badly mutilated and burned that the, the, um, the unit that it's called Zaka in Hebrew, the CSI, Crime Scene Investigation Unit, they've already said that there are certain bodies that will probably never be identified because they are uh, so badly beyond identification. And so as Israeli officials put together the puzzle of who's been killed, who actually might be in Gaza, the number keeps going up. It was just announced I think two days ago that a young eight-year-old girl with a uh, joint citizenship, Irish-Israeli. Uh, she happened to be sleeping at a friend's house the night of October 6th, and she was kidnapped. Uh, she was thought dead in, yesterday or two days ago. Her family was notified that actually we, we believe that she is being held captive in Gaza. So the number is always changing. How do Israelis feel about this? There is one piece, uh, there's disunity and there's unity. Here's the disunity. Some Israelis believe that the number one priority needs to be getting the hostages back, which means that any combat operations need to be conducted in a way that ensures the potential safety of hostages. Whereas other Israelis believe that uh, we should operate in Gaza as if there are no hostages because there are casualties in any war it could be soldiers it could be the hostages we need to count them all the same and the best way to defeat hamas is to sort of pretend the hostages aren't there so that's where the that's where the disagreement lies i would say there's one piece of unity among israelis and that is that there should be no ceasefires no pauses no breaks for humanitarian aid no and some even believe no aid at all allowed into gaza until the hostages are freed Israelis are really baffled. They cannot believe that the Red Cross has still not been allowed to visit the hostages. Meanwhile, the United Nations is making all these declarations against Israel and has not said a word. I mean, you know, here and there they'll say, we hope the hostages come back, but really is not condemning Hamas, is not working hard to release the hostages. And right now there are people camped outside the Ministry of Defense, And uh, it was started by families of the hostages, and then other people joined them. And they said, we are going to sleep outside the Ministry of Defense until the hostages are released. And uh, believe me, they're telling the truth. Uh, Back in Israel, and I think it was, ooh, I want to say 2012, but I'm not sure. We had something called the cottage cheese protests. This is where Israelis, mostly young Israelis, vowed to sleep out on the street until Prices came down. It started with the price of cottage cheese, but it led to the prices of other goods just because Israel is so damn expensive. Trust me, I live there. Uh, And they slept out there until policies were changed. And I really do believe that people are going to sleep outside the Ministry of of Defense until hostages are released. This could be months, um, but I, I would take them at their word. But they are united. I think Israelis are united in the idea that we should not take a ceasefire or any sort of humanitarian pause until hostages, all hostages are released, not just the ones with certain passports, not just the ones who are women, elderly children, but all hostages need to be uh, released. And uh, and Netanyahu has has signaled that. Uh, Biden and Blinken and others have said that there should be a humanitarian pause to allow some aid in. I've talked to some political scientists, and what they've told me is that Behind closed doors, it's very likely that Biden and Blinken and others are saying, We understand that you're not gonna pause. We don't think you should pause. However, for our own political well-being, we need to at least say that we wanna pause, knowing full well that you'll reject it. But there's a lot of a game, you know, there's a game going on here. Biden has to run for re-election. He has, you know, very progressive Democrats on the left who Are, you know, who some of whom have called for a ceasefire. I found it very interesting this week that Bernie Sanders said on television that there should not be a ceasefire. And he was adamant about uh, Israel needing to destroy Hamas and that a ceasefire would only give Hamas more of a chance to regroup. Uh, Go Bernie Sanders. I did not expect that. At the same time, President Obama uh, hinted that as bad, you know, the Hamas atrocities were horrible, but it needs to be, we cannot forget the context or we cannot forget the context of the uh horrible occupation which i feel is mistaken i feel that lending context to this is uh is not appropriate that there's really no context anyone who knows what hamas stands for knows that this has absolutely nothing to do with territorial dispute or freedom for the palestinians it has to do with destroying israel and i'm 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 surprised that world <laughs> world leaders do not get that and so many average people do not get that but alas that is the world we are living in um i think it's also worth noting that israelis are now protesting something else they're protesting the fact that the united nations has said nothing about israeli refugees who have been displaced you know the un has always made a big show about going to bat for the displaced the refugees especially in gaza but there are about 200,000 Israelis who've been displaced from their homes in the south and in the north. They're living in tent cities. They're living in hotels. They're living with friends and vacant apartments. The United Nations has said absolutely nothing about them. And Israelis are rightfully saying we're refugees too. But I think the fact that they haven't, my take on it— is that this is simply anti-Israel bias, anti-Semitic bias, and I would never expect them to say anything about Israeli refugees other than we hope everyone gets to go home safely or something uh, token like that. Um, I think it's pretty obvious the United Nations is um, is not, you know, doesn't doesn't see Israel the same way it sees uh, other countries. You know, is the other thing Israelis are really talking about is they're noticing anti Semitism around the rest of the world. I think I've talked about this before, but in the past, Israelis noticed anti Semitism when it was on a grand scale, like the Pittsburgh shooting, which happened five years ago. But for the most part, the odd swastika on a gravestone or the synagogue that got a threat, uh, you know, Israelis didn't really take notice of this. But now they are, and they're sending around videos about anti Semitism in the rest of the world. Uh, And I actually think this is healthy that Israelis are realizing what what diaspora Jews um, are are dealing with, and and they're they're shocked they're shocked that um, in you know the wonderful U.S. of A. uh, that uh, maybe they would expect it in France because there's so many French immigrants to Israel now because of anti-Semitism. I think Israelis are used to that, but I think it's coming as a big surprise just how anti-Semitic the United States is and how many threats there are. And how unsafe Jews need to be and this, this incident in Russia where the tarmac was stormed by people looking to attack uh, Jews on a flight from Israel and Israelis on a flight from Israel. And um, just what, is, what Jews in America are having to go, with, uh, go through right now in general. Israelis are taking notice. And in that sense, their consciousness of, of world Jewry uh, is uh, expanding. Uh, this leads to the issue of PR. You know, there's big talk about Israeli PR, that we're losing the PR war, that uh, Israeli PR is terrible. We need to be – we need to do a better job. You know what? I I personally don't agree with this, but that's just me, Joel. I feel – I've come to the point where I realize, yes, maybe the PR could be a little bit better. But I've I've looked around on YouTube, on the official IDF site and government sites. The evidence is there. For anyone who really wants to know what's happening in Israel and see photographs and videos and images of tunnels and images of the base underneath the hospital in Gaza, the evidence is there. I don't know that there's any PR that would convince the people that, I mean, that believe what they do that um, that Israel is in the right. Now, I do think there's this sort of a middle. You know, There's the extremists who really hate Israel and always will but there is a middle that I think can be convinced. Um, why they're not paying more attention to this PR, I I don't know. I think Israeli PR could be a little bit quicker. They could probably respond faster with facts and have those facts ready for when certain accusations come. Uh, for example, Qatar today denied the fact that, or denied that the hospital is being used as a cover for a Hamas base because Qatar actually built that hospital, the Shifra Hospital in Gaza City. And they said that Israel's claims are false. So Israel needs to immediately get on top of that and put the facts out there. But at the same time, they have. And I I just don't know what kind of PR we're actually expecting uh, to do the job because the the facts are available to all who want to see them. I just think people don't want to see them. Uh, I think this would be a great time to turn it over to some questions. So Rabbi Neil Katz, are there any questions that you can sort of combine into a few? Are there any themes that are popping up? And take yourself off mute, Neil. Oh, yes. I'm, oh, I, I, was, I was texting you. I was texting you. Why am I not hearing you, Neil? Sorry. Um, so, who governs the okay, war? I'm just who read governs the So, Neil, type post-war. me in the comments because I'm not, some for some reason, I'm not able to hear you. reconnecting there. Here's a great question, and I'll work backwards. What's my What's estimate, my about, estimate tourism? about tourism? And when will that resume? How about teen trips? Well, I thought it was very ominous, you might say, that the reform movement, it's called Yala Israel, they postponed their registration for their summer trips. Uh, I would imagine, my guess is that USY, Ramah, and others might follow or at least tell participants that you can go ahead and register, but we're not sure if the trips will happen. I don't know. I don't know when those will resume if this really does become a six-month to year-long war i don't know if those trips will occur this coming summer i know birthright has already postponed trips Um, momentum israel which sends mothers and uh, jewish women to israel they've postponed trips so certainly they're not happening now And a lot of it comes down to the parents, you know, how comfortable do parents need to be in order to send their teen to Israel over the summer. I personally believe that that Israel would not allow tourists to come if they thought they were in danger. It might mean that the itinerary is greatly changed and that um, instead of visiting sites, you know, in the south and the north, most of the the trip takes place in the center, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv but uh and that the full trip doesn't happen but um as for when you know I I don't I don't know um but I do know that the tour guides are suffering I'm friends with a lot of tour guides their career went from you know full to zero uh overnight and I I hope economic relief reaches people like that as well there's a lot of money being raised to rebuild the infrastructure rebuild the south but I hope um that money can find a way into the pockets of ordinary Israelis. And I must say, the government is talking right now about plans to get money to average Israelis whose businesses have been harmed and and simply with reservists serving on the front lines, many people have to restructure their jobs and not work full time to take care of kids. Um, in many ways, the country is in upheaval in that sense, and the government has recognized that there does need to be aid, although nothing officially has happened yet. Neil, are you signaling me? Yeah, I apologize, there was a feedback Let me check my uh, settings and just see if there is... You know, can you I, hear me? I, I don't know why I'm not hearing you. Um, okay. Can you oh, hear me? Someone just said Momentum is sending a group of 80 moms on Monday. We can hear him. I hope we that's can true. Hear him.
1: We I can really hear hope
0: him. that's true. You can hear me? Yes, we hear you. He doesn't. So here's a question. Has the Red Cross really tried to visit the hostages? And who governs Gaza post-war? I don't know if the Red Cross has really tried. I'm not sure. There's a part of me that knee-jerk one believes that they haven't really tried, that Israeli hostages don't count as much as other types of prisoners of war. I don't know if that's true or not, if that's just my sort of you know DNA Jewish paranoia. Um, who governs Gaza post-war? Well, this is the million shekel question, uh, and there have been a few... There's been a few things that came out in the last week. Uh, Israel said that they will be involved in the security of Gaza post-war. So now, no matter who governs, Israel is going to have a hand in the security. What exactly that means, I'm not sure, but I think what it does mean is that they are not going to turn over security to whoever's in charge. They're going to have some sort of deal where they work with that government to make sure that the arms stay with who needs to be armed um, and security is coordinated probably similar to how it was supposed to be in the West Bank after peace accords were signed, you know, in, in 94 Oslo Um, as for who takes over, you know, the, what's been said lately is that the Palestinian authority in the West Bank would take over responsibility for Gaza, but they've said we'll only do that if there's some sort of long-term solution for the West Bank as well. And on the one hand, that might sound like a threat But I actually think this is a good thing. I I think that one thing this situation might do, it could shake up Israel a little bit and make it realize that we need to solve the West Bank issue as well once and for for all. Because right now it's been this quasi thing happening that's not maybe a full occupation, but kind of an occupation. And we have Jews there in areas maybe they shouldn't be. And there's been settler violence that we haven't reacted to. We need to settle this. We, for our own sake, uh, not just because it's the right thing to do. And and I think, I mean, I think it would be a good idea if the PA were to take over Gaza. But in addition to having some sort of long-term solution for the West Bank as well, because we need to rid ourselves of that problem. And that does mean, by the way, taking out, removing some of our own settler outposts uh, in the West Bank. And uh, I think, net, you know, Biden is making this clear that uh, we. The U.S. sold a bunch of M-16 assault rifles to uh, Israel, but only on the condition that they would be used for the army and the police, not for settlers in, in the West Bank. And um, I do hope the U.S. makes more of these conditions because Israel has been allowed to get away with uh, some of this for too long, and it's it's unhealthy for for us, not just for the other side. Uh, five new messages. Wow. Uh, what about the UN Human Rights Commission now that Iran is chair? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's. I've sort of. I believe at this point the United the United Nations is kind of like a dysfunctional eighth grade student council. I mean they take a lot of votes and they say a lot of things, but ultimately I've I've sort of stopped paying attention to um to to what they say and I, I've I've accepted um, that they are anti Israel and anti Semitic and so I just try not to get worked up about it for my Uh, for my own health. Someone else asked about governing Gaza post-war and hostages. Someone asked, how did they find out about this girl, this Irish-Israeli girl being alive? You know, I don't know for sure. Uh, It could be that, I mean, it could be that they found a body that they believed was hers, and in the end, they were able to identify that that it was someone else. It could be that they found um that they found something of hers in gaza a lot of a lot of the ways they've been identified to able to identify hostages uh is because their cell phone signal was picked up in gaza for a short period of time before hamas took their cell phone or apple watch or whatever whatever it was and uh another way is simply through facial recognition the high-tech community in israel has been working very hard to um to pivot and put some of their energies into using facial recognition to take even the slightest sliver of a video or picture and uh, to use AI to match that face to other fa- uh, images of that person uh, online. And, and it could be that it was that way as well. But that's not not something I can say uh, for sure. Are they using any of the robots that can identify explosives? Um, I, I don't know. I would The Exactly how they do it. I do know that the unit working on you know explosives uh, is it, it's in many ways, I've heard it's the hardest unit to be in other than tanks because what what tanks what's so hard about being in a tank is that you are constantly cleaning the tank and you have to take care of it, and there's so many moving pieces you need to oil and grease. I would come home on Thursdays after cleaning the tank, literally smelling like Vaseline and motor oil. Um, but it's even worse in Hondasa Kravi, the uh, combat engineers. They have these huge vehicles, which are tractors and other devices to dig up and lay bridges and uh, dig up explosives. And I do know that they use robots, especially their elite unit, which is called Yahalom, which means diamond, but that is the those are the that's the elite unit of the combat engineers. I would imagine they are, but you know, I don't know for sure. Um look, there's also talk, this isn't so related, but there's talk that, you know, we're 10, 20 years away from having all robot forces do uh do the fighting. Israel's working on technology where we don't need to have actual human bodies in there. Um so you know, that would be ideal where we don't need to send our our children in and we can actually have robots do a lot more uh, of the work. Um, We have some new things coming in. So I'm going to, here's a long one. So give me a second to read it. So someone asked a question about what it means to have occupation in the West Bank. Um, Wow. I mean, this is Extremely complicated. A little bit beyond what I can answer. Uh, I th- I think the idea is that Palestinian residents of the West Bank don't have full right to move everywhere. Uh, that there are checkpoints. Um, so, you know, some would say this isn't occupation. This is just security. That there's a that there is a wall and a border, and so it's not. I actually don't want to get into it. What I want to do is take a screenshot of that question and research it so that next week I can answer more fully because I think that's my responsibility to you. Uh, Someone asked, am I confident that the IDF can actually remove Hamas from power in Gaza? You know, so I, I must say, so far... You know, remove completely. I don't know what that means. I heard someone say that we know we're victorious when people will move to the south of Israel and they'll feel safe living close to Gaza, like there's no longer a threat. Do We really think we can kill every single one of the 20,000 to 30,000 Hamas militants. I think it's going to be very hard. How You know, we talked about the body count on the Israeli side. How many Hamas fighters have been killed so far? Right now, it's estimated at 300. Which sounds like a lot, and a lot of those have been commanders, and those commanders have then been replaced, and they've been killed. But 300 out of 30,000—that's what one percent. And so the idea of obliterating everyone. Now, why is it so hard to kill them? Well, because they hide underground in these tunnels. Um, in in that, you know, it's not enough to, you know, we always say we're going to win on land, sea, and air. But there's a fourth front to this war, which is land, sea, air, and underland, underground. Uh, Israel needs to fight that war very carefully, but that's where Hamas is. Uh, We need to not only kill them, but also destroy their rocket launchers, which more and more, it's been this week, it's come out that they've been found in kindergartens next to mosques. The wiring to fire these rocket launchers is actually the same electrical system used by these kindergartens and these mosques. Um, so, you know, that's, that's why Israel has to go very slowly, house by house, alley by alley to try to blow things up. But the further south that Israel goes, we're seeing less and less rocket fire into, uh, Israel, but I, I, the Israeli public will not accept anything less. So maybe the answer to the question is, can we remove Hamas from power? Um, I would say the answer might be yes, simply because we can't leave until that's happened. Um, the army will be there until, Until there's a new Gaza, and we're already seeing a new Gaza. The fact that there are two Gazas now, north and south, is simply incredible. And uh, you know that's such a change in the landscape, such a change in the mentality and the psychology of what Israelis are leading, are living next to. Uh, But the big fight is still yet to come when when we start going into Gaza City and other really dense, uh, densely populated uh, locations. Um, Are there any? Okay, so someone asked about volunteers. Okay, so what organizations facilitate volunteers to help on the ground after things calm down? I'm going to screenshot that question too. I know there are a lot of great uh, volunteer organizations. Aside from giving money, uh, coming to Israel and volunteering in some capacity uh, will be, I mean, incredibly, incredibly helpful. Uh, You know, one thing in particular is mental health. Uh, We are going to have a big—I don't want to say crisis because I don't like using that word, but we're going to have a big mental health issue to deal with down the road. Uh, The soldiers, for sure, Uh, they're involved in close combat, um, not just being shot at, but also killing and rescue operations. Uh, I've worked with the 669 Rescue Unit. This is a very elite unit of the Air Force. Uh, And their job is to helicopter in and, and extract injured... Israeli soldiers, and this unit has a very high level of PTSD because they're seeing kids their own age uh, with, you know, the injuries of war, and they're working on them in the helicopter on the way to the hospital, and sometimes they don't make it alive, and this takes a toll on them. And PTSD wasn't talked about for a long, long time in Israel, but in the past ten years, it finally is on the table. So one one area we're going to need volunteers. Is in mental health and that kind of therapy, um, you know, probably if you speak Hebrew, it would be a lot, a lot more helpful. But I'm sure there's a need for English, um, even English as well. But I, I will look into some areas where we can actually coordinate volunteers, because uh, I know so many people are are into doing that. Question here: How can we cha- or can we change the narrative and convince the Gazans that Hamas does no good for them? Wow, that's a great question. Um, you know, Israel does, and when they drop leaflets, and Israel does have a, an Arabic language spokesman, they always say Hamas is nu- not looking out for you. Hamas does not want you to leave. Um, that where we are reminding them. On the one hand, I think support for Hamas might be more endemic than we realize. That it's not just the twenty to thirty thousand Hamas terrorists, but there's just a lot of people who support Hamas because Hamas hates Israel and they hate Israel. But I also wouldn't be surprised if there's a lot of Gazans who would like to get rid of Hamas and that know their life can be better if only they weren't there, but they don't have the power to mobilize against them. I Can we convince them? Um, I don't know. You know, look, Yoav Galant, the defense minister this week, said, we are going to get the head of Hamas, Sinwar. And our job will be easier if Gazans go ahead and do it themselves. So in a way, he's sort of encouraging Gazans to uh, assassinate Sinoir themselves. Um, how realistic that they, is it that they would actually do that? Uh, probably not realistic, but I you know we're dropping the hint and we're saying that if you want your own future to be good, take action, you know, put it in your own hands. Uh, but I would take, I, I don't know that anyone would would actually do that because they would have to answer to Hamas uh, at the end of the day. Um, do I have other, okay, so someone asked about, okay, so the tunnels, how will the tunnels be disabled? There are certain ways to disable these tunnels. One way is to simply blow them up. And so all the, the, they crumble and all the dirt that, and rubble that comes in and the cement that comes in would would block the tunnels and make them unusable and be impossible to get out. I've heard there are other ways. I've heard there might be some material that can seal them and sort of seal the end of the tunnel and, and make it so that it, you're not able to enter or get out. Of course, the big question here is the hostages. We're pretty sure the hostages are being kept in the tunnels. So... You know, how, how much do we want to destroy them and in the process hurt our own chances of getting the hostages out? Uh, that is, you know, that is the big question we're dealing with. But I do, I do, even though I can't answer the question specifically, I do know that Israel has ways to destroy the tunnels. Uh, what's so complicated is that there are 500 kilometers of tunnels, about 380 miles. Think about that. 380 miles of tunnel. Underneath Gaza, and there's openings all over the place. Um, So it's not just this, you know, wherever you, it's kind of like whack a mole where there's one uh, opening and you seal it up. Next thing you know, there's, you know, thousands of other openings. You know, another way we might destroy the tunnels is not really less by touching the tunnels, but by destroying the ability of people to live inside them. You know, Hamas last week, and I might have mentioned this last week, and when we talked, but they attempted. You know, there were aid trucks coming into Gaza from Egypt in the Rafah crossing, and Israel inspects those aid trucks, and what they found inside a box, boxes of cookies, were aerators. These aerators, aerators are used to oxygenate the tunnels. The tunnels are so long that you can't actually get oxygen from the holes. You need. Um, you uh excuse me you need to oxygenate the tunnels and this is why fuel is so important as well why is hamas making such a big deal about fuel because they need fuel to run the generators generators that will pump oxygen down into the tunnels so one way to defeat hamas is by not necessarily blowing up the tunnels but by literally choking hamas by not allowing oxygen in there um This is a good strategy aside from the fact that we have hostages in those tunnels. And again, Israel is going to have to make a decision at some point, and maybe they're already making decisions. I think this is another reason they're going slow slowly is that it's on a case-by-case basis is, you know, do we just choke off all the tunnels and allow no oxygen in, but then uh, allow the 241 of our own who are in there to perish at the same time? Uh, It's a horrible decision that Israel... Is already facing. Someone asked, "Did the Palestinians know that Hamas was building all these tunnels?" The answer to that one, I can tell you, unequivocally, absolutely. And this is one of the reasons why it's harder to commit to convince Gazans that uh, to, to turn against Hamas. Abs- there's no way you have tunnels next to kindergartens, in public parks, swimming pools, uh, and um, mosques without the rest of the public. Knowing uh, now, have they put one into one together? Have they realized that the reason they're so poor is because the billions of dollars that is coming in from the rest of the world is not going to their schools and homes and uh, infrastructure, but instead it's going to the tunnels? I don't know if they're adding that up. If they are, they would realize that Hamas is, pardon my French, screwing them over, but. Um, that, that is what they need to realize, because that's where the funding has gone. But there's absolutely no way that ordinary Gazans do not know about the tunnels. Um, so that that one was an, an easy question. Uh, do I have a comment about other countries taking or not taking refugees? You know, I do have a comment about that. Um, I have heard that other some of the European Union countries are reexamining their refugee policy. I think, off the record... Behind closed doors, a lot of European countries are starting to realize that perhaps it was a mistake to re- to let in freely so many refugees from um, Arab and Muslim countries. That they're seeing they're seeing the result right now. Uh, you know, a huge riot in Berlin where 65 German police officers um were injured my wife was in berlin a couple of years ago before the pandemic and she said their entire neighborhoods of berlin where all all you see is arabic and arabic signs and restaurants i mean the you know arabic quarters of the city and um a lot of european countries i think are starting to realize that they have a problem on their hands and they're trying to enact policies where if you're not working they can uh they can what's it called extradite you export you uh Uh, eat more easily, and that there's a higher bar for being allowed into the country, because up until now, it was very free, and uh, refugees were allowed in and out. Um, So one question is how to handle all the ones that they have, and another is what to do about future ones who want to come in and uh, kicking out those who don't work and who they feel uh, are dangerous to society. Uh, How? Here's a great question. How did it it happen that Israel allowed them to build so many miles? Of tunnels. I happen to know a little bit of the answer to this um, simply because I've spoken to soldiers who uh, worked on tunnel research. And there are two answers. I think one answer is we might not have realized how many tunnels were being built underneath Gaza deep. We might have thought that most of the tunnels were just coming close to the border and that the whole purpose of the tunnel was to cross into Israel. And we didn't realize that one of the purposes was actually to navigate throughout Gaza and put their rocket launchers anywhere they wanted to. So it might have just been a mistake in estimating what they were up to. But another reason, uh, soldiers have told me, is that the Israeli policy was to allow uh, them to build tunnels up to the border as close as they could possibly get, and then at the last moment to destroy the tunnel. Uh, So to allow them to use as much manpower as they could, as much material as they could, and then once they really got close to the border with Israel, then to destroy uh, the tunnel to prevent them from sneaking in. Look, it's worth pointing out that on on October 7th, no one crossed in through tunnels. They crossed in from the air. They crossed in through the fence. I mean, no one thought uh, that it was going to happen that way. And again, this is a miscalculation on Israel's part. They assumed for too long that the tunnels were uh, were the way that Hamas would try to sneak in. But in a way, it could have been a MacGuffin and threw us off the scent when instead the evidence was right in front of our faces and, and we simply missed it. So um, that's that's the answer to how we allowed them to build so many tunnels. But I, I don't think we will. Um, I don't think we will anymore. I think we're much... I mean, if anything, October 7th has taught us that we, our guard needs to be up all the time and we need to watch for... Or really, all all movement, uh, nothing can be dismissed as just a rehearsal, as just typical Hamas activity or Hezbollah activity. Uh, that we need to take all threats seriously. Inside Israel is produced by 188th Crybaby Productions Incorporated. Episodes are recorded online before a live audience. To get the links to future recordings, sign up at slash podcast if you have questions, comments, or to give feedback, and I know with all those Jewish listeners out there, you have feedback, drop us a note at joel at joelchasnoff.com. To learn more about me, my comedy and books, and to sign up for my newsletter, Hebrew is Magic, you can do that at joelchaznoff.com. Thanks for listening.